everybody. This is Mark Scott. Thanks for joining me today. Our ninth episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack continues our 10-part series on the book, You Don't Have to Do That. Chapter 8 of the book is called Our Kids' Kingdom, and it gives us the so what of the book, if you will, and of this podcast series. What is the most critical message we need to give to the next generation? How do we nurture faith in children without the toxicity of religion? What kind of people do we want our children to be in this complex world? Now, we also must be honest with a legitimate fear that comes up, that surfaces when we have this kind of discussion and we've done the deconstruction that I have done in this book, and that is, what if I am wrong? Could I be subjecting my kids to a dismal life or even worse, eternal torment? Is this a heaven or hell issue for our children? So we have deconstructed through chapters one through six. We have turned a corner in chapter seven with the most critical question about who is Jesus. And now chapter eight is actually my favorite chapter of the book. And we are moving forward We are building now. We are constructing rather than deconstructing. We are progressing. We are laying out a path going forward. So I'm going to read actually a pretty big excerpt from the book, starting in page 118. That's the very beginning of chapter 8. So bear with me while I read this section to you. I'll be reading a few pages. What about Christian responsibility? A few years ago, I was invited to lead a men's weekend seminar at a local church. During that weekend, I facilitated three sessions where we dove into some of the teachings I have been sharing in this book. Afterward, the pastor and a few of the elders took me to church. I'm sorry, took me to lunch. They were polite and grateful for the time I had given, but it was also obvious something was bothering them. The pastor summarized the concern, quote, I appreciate what you shared this weekend, But what about Christian responsibility? What about our part? I'm afraid the men will begin to think they don't have to do anything. I don't recall having any great response at the time, but I was encouraged that there didn't seem to be any confusion over the theme of the weekend. Just as in this book, the main point of that weekend was to illustrate how we have misconceived the means of spiritual growth and the way God works. I was becoming more secure in trusting Jesus at his word from John 6, 29, which says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Still, this question of Christian responsibility lingered with me. Since I run into some version of this question quite a bit, and it is a logical question, let me try to do a better job of addressing it here. After all, it directly relates to how we raise our children. First, I see responsibility as responsibility. To be responsible is to be responsible. Simply, someone is only being responsible in as much as that person knows how to respond and can do so. You cannot hold someone responsible unless they have been equipped and supported with the knowledge and resources to know how to respond in a given situation. For instance, We cannot hold students responsible for their learning in our education systems until we have provided them with effective ways to learn. We must literally teach them 
how to respond to new teachings. This view of responsibility is true in all kinds of endeavors. A person cannot be expected to respond to a play call in sports, a recipe in the kitchen, or a flat tire on the road without first being equipped for each of these situations. Most of the time, equipping involves modeling and practicing. Then, responsibility can be expected. So when it comes to this idea of Christian responsibility, we must first ask, to what or whom are we responding? And herein lies the difference that underlies this entire book. The Christian religion prepares people to respond to God's law. Jesus equips people to respond to God's love. Everything about how we raise the next generation concerning faith rests upon this distinction. Let me say that again. The Christian religion prepares people to respond to God's law. Jesus equips people to respond to God's love. Everything about how we raise the next generation concerning faith rests upon this distinction. A response to law, which we are no longer under, demands that we do. We must know the laws and fear the enforcement of those laws. We must justify ourselves to the lawgiver. God is someone to be appeased. Our duty is to teach others how to follow the laws as well. In this mindset, the response-able or responsible thing to do is teach our children what the Bible says about sin and hell and how to avoid both. A response to love, on the other hand, demands that we receive. I'm going to turn the page here. With God being love, we enjoy and accept him. The response ability to love is freedom from the law. When my daughters were young, we could play all kinds of games, have living room movie nights and camp outs, dance, pretend, play, dress, I'm sorry, <laughs> dance, pretend, play dress up, laugh, and read stories. We would imagine we were in an airplane taking off when we left the house in our car. In all of those times, my daughters would simply respond to their father's love. They had to do nothing but receive the experience. They were free to enjoy the relationship. The way we train our children to respond to love is the same way we would train a plant to respond to photosynthesis or teach a garden to receive rain. We do not have to convince the plant photosynthesis is necessary. We don't tell our garden that rainfall is good for it. We do nothing but let it be. The only way there is a problem is if we block the sunlight from the plant over enough time or shield the garden from rainfall. Likewise, our children are already designed and destined to receive God's love just by being alive. There is only a problem if we come in with a different doctrine or gospel other than Christ that interrupts God's pure love. When we tell our children what they must do to be good Christians, We put a canopy over the garden. We introduce a lie that obstructs the whole truth from getting through. Could this be why Jesus did not keep telling us to make children like adults, but rather directed adults on multiple occasions to become like little children if they wanted to enter and understand the kingdom of God? 
Before my daughters were able to experience the fun times I described, each of them was an infant. As their parent, I did all of the work. I held them, I changed them, I fed them. They couldn't even burp on their own. They had one job. Receive. Receive whatever the Father did for them. Whatever the Father did with them. This is the picture we can have in mind when we consider the born-again experience. It is not captured in a declaration or a doctrinal belief. It is not in agreement with all the words of a sinner's prayer. It is that time when we realize our one job in life is to receive the Father's love. That it is all we are capable of and all we are meant to do. When we realize this state of full dependence, that is the new birth, the new life. That is what it means to be born again. So that is what I want to get into as the critical takeaway of this whole chapter and the foundation of everything we talk about with the next generation, with youth and with children, with raising our own kids, is that we do have to have Christian responsibility, but we need to be responding to the right thing, not to the law, but to love and responding to the teachings of Jesus as we go forward. So I did say I was going to read quite a bit. There's another section here that I want to share with you, another couple of pages or a page and a half about what chapter eight gets into. Where do we go from here? So this chapter will contain my lessons learned when it comes to passing on the faith to the next generation in the context of our Christian responsibility to love. These are lessons I am still learning, and I am certain there are many other lessons I have yet to learn. Some of this revelation is so recent that even my own daughters would not recognize it in me. They have grown up under my wilderness journey and, unfortunately, have had to make sense of contradictory messages as I have waffled between two worlds. Leaving religion to find Jesus can be a tumultuous experience, and it can be especially hard and confusing for children. This is really my purpose for writing this book, to help parents and pastors who shape the next generation to understand they can do so in grace and freedom. Jesus is a better gift than religion to give to our children. Much of what I have written about to this point, the deficiencies of religion, the institutional church, misusing the Bible, formal Christian education programs, pastoral ministry, and tithing, has been written about by many others in many ways. The realization that Christendom had to be deconstructed is not news, but it has left us wondering how to rebuild a vibrant faith, which was the focus of chapter 7, and left us struggling to be confident in doing right by our children, which is the focus of this chapter. I once heard an interview with Brian Zahn, a pastor whom I respect, in which he argued that a person may leave the church referring to the organized church, and it may work for them, but they would greatly diminish the odds of their children being followers of Jesus. He went so far as to contend they would need to be okay knowing that their grandchildren would certainly not be followers of Jesus, that they would have almost a 0% chance of being Christians. Even for people who can see the obvious flaws with the religious structure, that is a scary proposition. Despite the flaws of the institutional church, Parents still want their kids to know Christ. 
if they see those two things as inextricably linked, every interaction with the next generation can be frightening and guilt-ridden. What I attempt to do in this chapter is reset the discussion. My hope is that parents and pastors and caretakers of children and youth find freedom in authentic faith. My goal is to keep the focus on the theme of this book. You don't have to do that. Whatever that is for you, whatever people have convinced you that you must do to raise children who love God, it is okay to let go of that and replace it with Jesus. Jesus is enough. All right, so that is quite a bit from chapter 8 as we um, outline or as we set up the arguments in in that chapter. So here's what I do in the rest of the chapter. I outline certain mind shifts, if you will, that need to happen as we're working with the next generation and as we're teaching people about the Christian faith. So I'm going to highlight those very quickly, just outline them and and touch on each one briefly, but not get too in-depth into them. All right, the first shift is love over law, which makes sense based off of what I already um, stated. Love over law, be a different kind of fundamentalist. The, the fundamentals of law and religion are centered on knowing doctrines, reading the Bible, and articulating what people must do to be saved. The fundamentals of love are remaining in Christ and receiving his life so the fruit of his spirit shapes how you treat the people around you. So we need to focus on the right fundamentals. So the first shift we need to make is love over law. The second shift I talk about is deity over deficiency. Deity over deficiency. And I encourage people to be in a relationship, not a religion, with their children. We do our children a disservice, sometimes irrevocably, when we start spiritual instruction with their shortcomings, what is separating them from God. When we tell them they cannot know God or be loved by God until those issues are fixed, we misrepresent Jesus. Now, I address the fact that we still need honest self-appraisal. Being self-aware is of our strengths, of our weaknesses, of our needs. That is very important. So this is not to advocate for um, telling everybody everything's okay, just do what you want to do, be who you want to be, and, and don't worry about any shortcomings or faults or mistakes that you make along the way. No, we need to honestly be self-aware of our strengths and our weaknesses, our shortcomings, all of those things. But we don't need to start our spiritual training and spiritual growth teaching with how we're deficient and how we're um, corrupt and how we're so separated from God because that's not where the story begins. All right, the next shift that I talk about is questions over answers. Questions over answers. I'm a big believer that unquestioned answers are almost always more dangerous than unanswered questions. So it's important that we question um, different things and teachings that we are exposed to. With the right questions as opposed to the wrong answers, we set young people up to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. And in this section, what I do is reference 
a few questions in particular that can be of great use. Um, we're at a good time, really, in history to redefine evangelism. And we can do that with one subtle shift, and it's the shift from telling to asking. Shift from telling them, telling other people our good news, quote-unquote, which often doesn't end up being good news for people, to asking for their good news. Practically speaking, what I'm talking about in this section means less telling others, including our children and youth, how they should see things and more asking them how do they see things. So that is questions over answers. The next section is organism over organization. Organism over organization and getting into our understanding of the church. So look, here's the deal. It turns out that none of us is called to plant churches. We have already established Jesus takes care of that part. Our calling is to plant seeds. And again, everything we know about the church from the New Testament reinforces this idea that it is organic by design, organic by nature or supernature, if you will. As a living organism, the universal church is responsive to stimuli, it's dynamic, ever-forming, adaptive, just like human bodies, just like plants, family systems, all living organisms. It is important to help children see that being part of the universal church, the body of Christ, as their identity, essential to who they are. And any participation in the institutional church as activity, separate from identity, but capable of either helping or hindering their growth. Whatever benefits an organization can provide are icing on the cake, not the cake itself. This distinction cannot be overstated. The organization, the institutional church, the organized church, organized religion, is not necessarily bad, but it is also not essential. The organism, on the other hand, the living dynamic body of Christ, the organism, the community of faith, is indispensable at all times. So there's the difference between the two. I also use this phrase, artificial sweeteners, throughout this section, talking about artificial environments that we create. And uh, what I'll just say about it here is this. The most impactful spiritual development happens in real-life contexts while we are at home, school, and work. Processing what God is doing at the moment in our everyday lives is the real work of discipleship. So we want to be careful to not create all of these artificial environments, and those are the only settings that people are hearing about God in or where we're focused on the teachings of God. So organism over organization. The next mind shift, if you will, is fruit over gifts. Fruit over gifts. Let me get to that quote. While there is mention of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, the overwhelming emphasis is on fruit. Qualifications for service and leadership were based on character, not talent. So there's a section in there about that. Emphasize how they will be known as followers of Jesus by putting emphasis on their fruit over their gifts. 
The next shift is the word, capital W, over the word, little w. The word of God being Jesus over the word of God being the Bible. Now, the Bible is extremely valuable, and I have quoted it frequently throughout the book. I've talked about it a lot in this podcast, and I've already dealt with the Bible in a different chapter, so I won't rehash all of that. What I will say is that, frankly, the Bible can be misused to justify many anti-Christ behaviors while mislabeling them as Christian conduct. The key to avoiding this error is allowing the pattern of Jesus to trump the stance of Scripture when the two are in conflict or seemingly in conflict. The key takeaway here is to remember that Jesus has authority over Scripture, and we've already pointed that out. So we just need to let him have it. Let him have that authority over Scripture, and he gets to trump everything else. Jesus does not contradict himself. He is consistent and persistent with a message of love, love for others, love for neighbors, love for enemies, love for all. He's consistent and persistent in that message. I also deal with something in this section um, where I point out the fact that the, the Bible is not rated PG. Okay, there's some, there's some rough stuff in the, in the Bible, and we should really reexamine our approach to teaching it to children. This was actually kind of a new way of thinking and a new revelation for me just a few years ago. It's fairly recent in my life. Um, Simply put, the Bible is not written for children. And it's okay to acknowledge that reality. It's okay to not think that all of it should be um, taught to them while they are children. There's there's some things that just weren't meant for children to be processing in the Bible. Okay, the next shift is focus over fear. A shift that puts focus over fear. Lean into the reality of what is more than what if. Okay, if you searched evangelical teachings over the recent decades, you would think the prime objective of Christianity is to get people to heaven after they die. And in fact, as I make that statement, people are probably listening to that going, well, duh, that's the whole point of Christianity. The focus on the afterlife has become central to modern evangelicalism. Lessons, sermons, books, songs, all of it become about staying safe in this life until you can reach the finish line. Don't do anything to jeopardize your eternal destiny. Now, there are several significant problems with this. Besides the fact that it's just distorted in its theological implications, it is also detrimental to genuine Christian living in this world, in this world, the here and now. A common misrepresentation of the gospel today is the message that God wants you safe. If my safety becomes the main goal, then I will quickly see many threats around me. Others who believe or act differently become enemies, even though our fight is not against flesh and blood. And boy, howdy, do we see this everywhere right now. Lots of uh, fear-mongering. Instead of love, perfect love driving out fear, we see too much fear and too much fear-mongering leading to hate and aggression and so many 
behaviors that are just quite frankly anti-Christ behaviors. They are anti-Christian. They are not Christ-like. Um, so we get a lot of those behaviors and attitudes. Okay, the next mind shift is for, over, against. Promote what you know Jesus is like. Let's put what we are for over what we are against. The reputation of the true Christian church has become tarnished for good reason. There has been such an emphasis on being against things by prominent Christian churches and groups that there's really no room left for people to believe God can be for them. Polling has revealed that the first things unchurched people think of when they are asked about the church are things like anti-gay, judgmental, homophobic, and hypocritical. If the first thing anyone has in mind about the followers of Jesus begins with the word anti, we have a huge problem. We have gone so far off the rails and we have presented a false Christ to the world. Jesus is radically for people and pursues them with overwhelming kindness that leads to repentance and sacrificial love that leads to salvation. He is the Redeemer, He is the Savior, and He is the teacher that the world needs. We need to emphasize what we're for over what we're against. Now, some of that polling and data was about people's perceptions from outside the church toward the church. There's been an interesting, in the last couple of years, study done by Barna. I've, I've cited several Barna research studies in this series. And there's another one, and it's directed towards teenagers around the world towards teenagers around the globe. So these could be teenagers who um, have faith. In fact, many of them could be Christians already. Some of them might not be. They might represent other beliefs. Um, and it's, it's a huge study. It's about 25,000 respondents ages 13 to 17 from 26 countries. And it was pretty even spread among the different countries, about 1,000 uh, respondents from various countries, including Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Honduras, the UK, Ireland, Spain, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Poland, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, Malaysia, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines, Egypt, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, the US and Canada were also included. And I think I might have left a few out. But you get the pictures. It's a pretty extensive study, but I don't know the sampling of whether they had faith or not before. There is some encouragement here. There's some optimism, reasons to be optimistic here. Um, the biggest response is when you're talking about perceptions of Jesus, which of the following do you believe about Jesus? The biggest response comes to the, the, the idea that he offers hope to people and that he cares about people. So almost half of those who responded said those things, and that he's trustworthy. That was 38%. But there's still a chunk, though. Um, he is known for the things he is against. That's 10%. So one out of every 10 teenagers around the world? That's still a huge issue for me, that they say Jesus is known for the things he is against. Um and then the percentages go down 8%, 7%, 6% for the, the idea that Jesus is detached from today's real issues. He's judgmental, he's irrelevant or hypocritical. Um, but overwhelmingly, there's still some positive perceptions about Jesus around the world 
from youth. Okay, my closing words of chapter eight is what I will leave you with to wrap up this podcast. Our hope for the next generation is Jesus. Speak Jesus, live Jesus, love Jesus. Then our children will have so much less to unlearn. So much less to unlearn. Okay, in the show notes, you can see how to buy the book, subscribe on Substack, share with others, leave comments, reviews, feedback. Follow us on Instagram as well at Closer Than You Think. I want to leave you with this. If you are questioning, doubting, or wrestling with your faith, it may very well be that God is closer than you think. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.